You are listening to a podcast from The National. Fad or the future of city transport? That is the debate around electric scooters or e-scooters as they get set to come to a street near you in the UAE. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the National's newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Now, over the last two years, we've been seeing a big pickup in the popularity of electric scooters in urban areas around the world. And we'll uh, get into that uh, in a few minutes, uh, particularly talking to our London bureau chief, uh, Damien McElroy, who um, is seeing you know, firsthand um, how scooters are changing the way people get around in the capitals of Europe. Uh, but first, here are the other stories you need to know about uh, that come from the national.ae. Trump administration designated China a currency manipulator after the country's central bank allowed the yuan to weaken amid the trade dispute that has rocked global markets. HSBC plans to axe more than 4,000 jobs, with senior executives a focus of the cutbacks following the abrupt ousting of its chief executive after just 18 months. Business activity in the UAE's non-oil economy continues to rise, with the amount of new orders expanding, but at a slower pace than in previous months. And Emirates Global Aluminium, the UAE's biggest industrial company outside the oil and gas sector, said it has begun exporting bauxite ore from its mining project in Guinea. Welcome to the studio, Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor. Thanks very much, Mustafa. Uh, so, Chris, um, top of the headlines there is the uh, escalating tensions between China and the US. Um, the designation of China as a currency manipulator, um, Steve Mnuchin, the US Treasury Secretary, accused Beijing of using the yuan um, in this ongoing tit-for-tat war over trade between the two countries. Um, he said that uh, it's using or manipulating the currency to gain an unfair competitive advantage in international trade. It's the first time the, the US designated any country um, a currency manipulator since 1994. Mm, Bill Clinton, yeah. Who designated China yeah. as a currency manipulator. So it's, it's not new territory as in historically never happened, but it's been a long time um, since this, this has actually been triggered. Now, analysts are saying that this is largely symbolic because in the past, if you said you're manipulating the currency, then that would trigger a trade war potentially and negotiations over a trade deal. Because um, what it does is when the currency is weak, it helps its exports. Donald Trump, the US president, has complained that China has unfair advantage. It's companies in terms of its exports to the US. He's been slapping tariffs on. The latest was last week, $300 billion uh, worth of goods getting new tariffs. And then China said, we'll retaliate. And it seems like this, this move to let the yuan go to you know more than seven um, yuan to the dollar um, to break through that barrier is that retaliation. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's it's been uh, a week of, of kind of saber rattling almost, hasn't it? I mean, um, Trump came out with his, his decision to, to slap another uh, load of tariffs starting September. 
And of course, China had to be seen to react in some manner. Um, and uh, according to uh, to Mr. Trump, um, turned uh, currency manipulator, um, something which within the U.S. government was was uh, lauded as being uh, uh, true, but outside amongst many um, you know really really well respected economists, the, precisely the opposite was uh, was noted. China's response on Tuesday was was interesting, saying that uh, in being labelled a currency manipulator. Uh, that would severely damage the international financial order and cause chaos in financial markets. In fact, there was a great quote from uh, the People's Bank of China. It said, China advised the United States to rein in its horse before the precipice and be aware of its errors and turn back from the wrong path. It it, it sounds really, uh, um, you know, damaging potentially. I think it's it's probably more, as I said, saber rattling. Um, since then, China has in fact rode back a bit. Stock markets, to, which took a hammering on Monday, have in fact come back off um, China deciding to fix its rate higher the, the, or, or stronger than um, analysts had expected. Um, so it, it it could be that um, to a certain extent. Uh, it's it's a bit of a storm in the teacup. You know, one one day's market collapse does not a recession make. You know, um, true. But um, as we reported, the national, uh, the wealthiest five hundred people in the world lost two point one percent of their collective yeah. net worth in that market um, drop. So it's not insignificant. No, for some people, it's not. No, um, you'd you'd also argue that Donald Trump's following through on a pledge he made to tackle China on its uh, weak currency. Um, I mean, this is something that's c- come back again and again over the years. Um, I remember the George W. Bush's administration having real issues with China. They, and, and actually, at that time, they were weakening the dollar, hoping that would help exporters. Mm. So, th- th- you know, if we talk about Clinton in 1994, I mean, the, ever since China became a global economic power to rival the U.S., you're gonna have you're gonna have these issues now. Mm-hmm. That, you know, and I like China's colourful language about um, reining its horse. Yeah. Um, you know, almost. I mean, perhaps not sort of in Western, you know, kind of cowboy um, mm-hmm. language, but it's something that that will play well yeah. in the media in the US. Yeah. Um, and like you said, saber rattling, a lot of noise, people posturing. Do we still think that in the end there's going to be a trade deal? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you look at what uh, some of the um, economists outside of the U.S. government uh, said following uh, what um, Mr. Trump, uh, you know, designated China as uh, as a manipulator. Um, for instance, uh, the Nobel Prize-winning economist uh, and Professor Nouriel Roubini uh, said, "This is the beginning of deglobalization and balkanization of the global economy and decoupling between the U.S. and China." No wonder we are back in risk-off mode. Uh, markets are sharply down. Even Fed easing cannot stop uh, uh, markets being hit by a double negative supply shock, trade, and a tech war. So, you know, he's a pretty big noise, and he obviously thinks there's... We're, uh, we're big fans of Mr. Rubini, uh, Professor yeah. Rubini, uh, here at The National. Um, he is called Dr. Doom for a reason. <laughs> yeah. um, he was mildly optimistic um, earlier this year about the global economy mm-hmm. and, and has now taken his natural bearish stance, if you will. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's not the only one who, who's saying that. Um, you know, equ- equally, volatility, uncertainty, risk has been a factor, um, you know, the global economy and markets for some time. 
uh, you know, I wonder how used to it investors, you know, actually are getting. I mean, when China says, you know, this is going to cause chaos, we had chaos for ages. Mm. I mean, if you mm-hmm. think, you know, going back to to Brexit. Um, vote in 2016, Donald Trump's election, talking about Narendra Modi's election in India before that. Um, You know, you could even argue that, you know, China's own policies um, over the last few years in terms of the way they've been slowing their economy or or, or helping it to slow in in a sustainable way as they knew they couldn't keep up that hectic pace of that that, that pushed globalization to the fore. But going all the way back to 2009, we have been dealing with this kind of thing for a long, long time. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, it's interesting that since global, since two thousand nine, you know, we had the credit crisis in two thousand eight, and everybody, yeah, markets were absolutely uh, doom laden and devastated, devastated at that point. Then the rebound came, and as you're right, it seems to be cyclical almost. We're coming to a period again where several factors are all coming together. Global factors are all coming together at the same time. That could. Uh, on the surface, lead to um, you know a significant downturn in global economy, um, but then you look at the economy of the U.S., which is extremely strong still. I mean, you know, you, you could argue that Trump is is uh, operating in the way he is purely because he knows that the economy is so strong that it, it can actually uh, he can in fact play fast and loose, uh, if you like, with with uh, his policies regarding uh, China. And you have to bear in mind that, of course, re-elections are coming up. So, you know, the harder he looks, the better he looks, the more stand-up for America he looks, the, the better. Now, as it comes towards those elections, and he may well have to to rein things in a little bit in order not... Because if he really does put the Chinese in a corner, they're, they're certainly strong enough to fight back in a way that could hurt. Well, it's definitely the era of chaos at the moment, and we'll see how that plays out in the weeks and months to come. Um, as mentioned at the top of the show, uh, e-scooters... Micromobility, um, a huge, huge trend at the moment, um, not just in the Middle East or the UAE, but around the world. Um, Kareem, uh, the ride-hailing um, app, is in talks to run one of Abu Dhabi's first e-scooter rental services. Um, that comes after the capital legalized the leasing of mm. of these kind of vehicles. Um it was bought. Kareem obviously bought by Uber for more than three billion, um, and Uber itself also believes globally in the in the potential for 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 the, these e-scooters to help journeys under three miles, yeah, yeah. Um, which is actually the, the the largest bulk of the journeys in in most urban areas and in dense urban areas. And over the last two years, we've seen um, electric scooters become widespread across many many capitals. Um, urban planners, investors, authorities are taking the trend very seriously. Um, so we'll explore, you know, what does that mean for us here? Um, how is this going to play out? And and should you expect to be riding an e-scooter to work sometime soon? <laughs> Not me, I don't think. Well, it's early days. Um, the Integrated Transport Center in Abu Dhabi said that firms can apply for a certificate or a business license uh, to run e-scooter rental services. Uh, the first phase of the pilot program in Abu Dhabi will run for uh, about a year on two streets only, including the Corniche in Abu Dhabi. Um, the speed is restricted mm. to 15 to 20 kilometers per hour, which is interesting because in some other places as well, they've restricted the speed because these e-scooters can go up to 30 well, yeah, but kilometers I mean, an hour, which is pretty 20 fast. kilometers an hour is not slow if you hit Correct. An, an 80 stone driver. Yes. <laughs> and safety the issue of safety is paramount here. Yeah. I think that's why they're doing this pilot project. Um, pricing, tra- pricing structures for Abu Dhabi are not set out yet, um, but the idea, the aim is to get a nominal cost 
per journey to make it affordable, accessible. Um, Dubai um, has sort of put the brakes on, if you like, on rental of scooters now. Um, earlier this year, they, the companies have been doing it and, and then the Dubai authorities said, hold on, let's wait a minute, let's mm-hmm. explore it. So the fact that Kareem's getting involved now, other companies like Cirque, mm-hmm. um, we already had companies um, in Dubai that were going to do it. Yep. Um, so the infrastructure's there the the companies are getting ready for it. It's a business waiting to happen, and who knows what it leads to. Um, but I think they're taking the regulatory point of view here of let's take it slowly, let's oversee it, which personally I think sits in between the Western regulatory attitude, which is as a regulator, I don't want to get involved mm. with anything mm. unless I have to. Mm. And then the, the sort of Eastern or Chinese regulatory model, let's let's clamp down Regulate on things everything right now. Yeah. And it's actually, the, the, the huge irony of e-scooters is they are banned on the roads in China. <laughs> you can use them in the parks, but pretty much all e-scooters are made in China. Yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. you know, they have that sort of weird yes. dichotomy. The rest of the world can have them, but uh, right. not for us, thanks. Yeah. Although apparently they're popular in parks and public yeah. spaces in China. So it goes to show that there's demand. Um, you know, apart from Kareem, Uber, Bird, Lime, Lyft, all these companies are there, um, you know, looking at it. And there seems to be that there is quite a bit of huge demand. And it's been a trend that has been picking up pace since at least 2016 in terms of the commercialization of it. Mm -hmm. Of course, you've had these kind of devices around for ages. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you've had push ones around since who knows when. But um, yeah. And and, and from from a consumer's point of view, uh, not only from the convenience uh, aspect, but also from a price point of view. I mean, before it had to cease trading, quickly mobility in Dubai was offering bikes that to unlock was uh, three dirham and then 50 fill per minute to run. So... You know, a 10-minute ride on an e-scooter at 20 kilometers an hour, that's going to get you a fair old way, and it's only going to cost you five dirham. You couldn't do that in a taxi. And there's also the tourism angle, which is visitors that come to Abu Dhabi and Dubai might want to see the city that way as well, when there's been some, there's been, you know, some of that effect elsewhere that it appeals to tourists. Because also, you know, the regulation aspect of the pilot project is to understand who wants to use this, yeah. how do they want to use it? Because most tourists aren't walking around with a safety helmet. <laughs> and so, you know, if you're going to start putting those rules, then you limit that yeah. that grouping unless you, you do that in certain areas. But it's not, you know, we'll keep repeating this. It's not one size fits all. Mm. Um, let's get an international perspective uh, now. Uh, the European transport system is turning increasingly to electrification. And so the spread of battery-powered scooters is causing increasing disruption, if you like, on city streets. Um, We've got Damien McElroy, the National's London Bureau Chief, down the line. Uh, Damien, you're seeing firsthand the growing popularity of electric scooters in the British and other European capitals. Um, Is it causing frustration or or freedom um, for you and others? Um, Well, it's an immensely contentious thing, which is peculiar because it should actually be quite a simple innovation, really. I mean, if you think about it, these things are taking people and allowing them to commute themselves in a relatively positive for the environment way. However, um, there are a whole panoply of issues that this um, spread of scooters has uh, triggered. Um, Some of these are legal. Some of these are everyday inconvenience. Um, Some of them are indeed mortal risk to life and limb. So it's actually, for such a simple thing, it's actually created a whole very complex uh, set of issues. 
Um, I mean, the longer term perspective, I think, would say that this is part of the future, that people will choose to travel in this quite autonomous way. Um, now that, you know, it's relatively easy just to charge for um, a reasonable period of time. They have reasonable range. Um, uh, you know, it is a lifestyle choice and it is something that could help um, ease congestion. But um, frankly, European cities are not designed for this at the moment and that's causing big problems. So so walk me through it. On your average journey to work, how often are you either seeing people using them or jumping out of the way of them or maybe falling off your own scooter, Damien? Um, suggest that well in very in various ways um basically i see them every day um yes there is an issue of do you use them in on the pavement do you use them on the bicycle lanes uh or can you use them weaving among buses and other large lorries and things so so that is one of the one of the issues you know they they are now um reasonably prevalent around um we've had um, a few places in Europe where people have been actually killed, unfortunately, through um, uh, basically heavier traffic hitting them. Um, so, so that is an issue. You know, lots of people who use them um, would use them with with safety helmets, as you would if you were riding a bicycle. Um, but they do seem to present a different profile. So, um, there's a debate over whether they make you more vulnerable when you're sharing a congested road. Um, there's other issues that um, basically cyclists don't really like um, people using these in cycle lanes either. So um, uh, almost at every turn, it creates one problem or another. And, um, you know, I, as someone who does use it a bit, not not a huge amount, um, I find... Um, I find all these impediments do sort of weigh in your mind as you decide whether you use it on any given day or not. And uh, what, what's the situation? In, in London, what's the situation with regards two things, really? A, the legality of where you ride these things. Uh, it seems to me that it's not clear that it's legal to ride on a pavement or on a road. Um, what, what is the legal status regarding how, what, where you can use them? Um, basically, they are not legal. Um, so you could use them on private property, but you can't use them on the public highway or on the footpath. So after um, there was a, a young woman who was um, quite a prominent uh, YouTube blogger, no, Emily blogger who, yeah. who um, was killed at a roundabout in central London a few weeks ago. So the transport for London and the police came forward immediately and said they would hold a crackdown mm-hmm. on people using them. Um, and that has um, diminished the number of people using them. So that the basically the police have been instructed to do spot, um, you know, road checks, and um, they have the power to take away the scooter and to fine uh, somebody three hundred pounds. Um, so, and I also think they they can transfer. Um, I think it's three points on the license. So if you if you build up 12 penalty points on your license, you lose it. Um, so, you know, the, the penalties are quite severe. Um, there are similarly penalties in, in Paris has brought in bylaws to, to also penalize, um, users. Um, 
In other parts of Europe, there there is a particular problem, um, which is not so much here, um, which is essentially that lots of short-term hire companies have uh, le- distributed these scooters around and people just leave them on the streets. So there's a lot of resentment in France, about, or particularly in Paris and other cities such as, I think, Copenhagen, other Scandinavian cities, about just um, how much these these devices are cluttering the roads. Mm. And given in London, as I presume in, in uh, other European cities, the state the legal state isn't clear. But indeed, in London, you know, it's illegal. What's the situation regarding insurance in the case of an accident? I mean, you can't insure something well, that's illegal so anyway. You're, 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 you are in, um, you know, you are being reckless by by using these because. You can't be insured because it's illegal, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, and I think the head of Transport for London has said the government will have to come up with a legal framework um, to um, actually accommodate this innovation. Um, however, the, the problem with that in bureaucratic terms is to come up with a legal framework, you have to have a consultation, uh, which takes time. Then you have to have um, politicians who are willing to um, actually frame the laws and then you have to have um, a, pr- a process by which the law becomes law. Uh, and so we're looking at quite a long time frame, I think, before the, this situation can change. And do you think... In, um, but in given the... that the government is 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 supposedly trying to create um, a country that's more electric, that's more digital, um, you know, it, it seems anachronistic to try and crush um, the introduction of these of these um, devices, mm-hmm. if you like, um, while um, not being able to to bring forward and update laws. Um, so, so we're in quite quite a, a no man's land at the minute. Do you think it's it's incumbent, therefore, on the authorities to to make it more clear that the u- using of, of uh, e scooters, particularly in, in places like London? Um, carries an inherent insurance risk and that if you're not insured. Do, do you think that, that message needs to be made clearer? I think all around there could be better public messaging about um, what the state of play is, what the risks are, um, how the authorities are going to go forward. And um, that messaging at the moment has to be all, I think, on the downside because, um, you know, the, the, there has been no progress in actually incorporating these um, scooters into the public uh, transport plan. So if you go back 10 years, I think um, uh, London made great efforts to actually carve out lots and lots of cycle superhighways and defined areas where cyclists could um, travel on the roads. And Lots of those have been successful in terms of public safety uh, in giving confidence to cyclists they are greatly resented because they're essentially used during rush hour twice a day and then for the rest of the time there's lots of congestion around them. Um, but they have been something I don't think the governments would go back on and therefore I think it's probably incumbent upon either the, the Metropolitan Authority or nationwide for the government to come forward with some um, framework that allows people to use this in a safe way because if you know, there's nothing worse than the bad practice of allowing people to to perpetuate reckless behaviour, which is um, essentially the situation now.
Damien McElroy, the Nationals London Bureau Chief, thanks so much for joining us down the line. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk again about where where electric scooters are in the public consciousness in, in the next uh, uh, a few months. Indeed. Pleasure. Um, so, Chris, I mean, as we heard there from Damien, it's not a one-size-fits-all on the, on the idea of electric scooters. Mm. It really depends on the experience of the particular location. And actually... Um, in Uber's uh, IPO prospectus, it talked a lot about the potential for e-scooters and other, you know, personal micro mobility devices, if you like. That there's a lot of potential for them. But they also said that they are facing, depending on which city in which jurisdiction, different kind of restrictions, mm-hmm. and they range from, you know, outright bans to needing to get specific licenses from the authorities to lots of competition, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's, you know, New York or San Francisco or, or, or Europe or elsewhere. And it's not just Uber um, or Kareem, um, but other companies like Cirque. Lots of startups, yeah. Yeah, lots of, that have focused on that. Um, and, I mean, ultimately, if you, if you look at the data from the U.S. Department of Transportation, and this, again, something that Uber quoted for the demand, it thinks it's there, 46% of all U.S. vehicle vehicle trips in 2017 were less than three miles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's very short. And urban areas are very, very short trips. Obviously, you don't want to use a car for that. Uh, Metro or tube or train is going to be inconvenient. Um, Yeah, buses work. But, you know, obviously, that's that's not solving the last mile problem, if you like, which is you can probably get get half of your journey conveniently by a bus, (laughs) but then you're still walking places. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think also... I mean, it's interesting that that the e-scooter, particularly uh, as opposed to something like potentially, you know, a self-driving pod or whatever, is portable. So you can do the first mile to the train station, pick it up, take it on the train, do the last mile from the train station to wherever you work. So it has that um, appeal. And as Damon Damon was alluding to, it's you know, it's an environmentally, uh, it, it's a big green tick for the environment being electrically charged. Well, you say that. You do say that, but this and this this is really interesting research that's come out, and partly because of the popularity of e-scooters. Um, so I was reading the Guardian, but it's it's all over the media. I mean, researchers at North Carolina State University said that traveling by scooter produces more greenhouse gas emissions per mile than traveling by bus, bicycle, moped, or on foot. And I'll explain why. Your face of incredulity. <laughs> um, uh, it's probably similar to the listeners out there. So the team discovered that while the scooters themselves are obviously not environmentally unfriendly. Well, apart from the batteries. Well, there you go. So the materials to manufacture the frame, the wheels, and the battery, those have a footprint. But then these rental companies basically go around at the end of the day charging the bikes, the scooters, sorry, and bikes probably, and also tidying them up because one of the complaints is that people just drop these on Uh the street uh when they've stopped their session and they they cause you know they you know they they're a hazard and also they need to be tidied up so that people are driving around doing that in cars in cars well, or, or bikes yeah. or vans so that that does add to it so there is an impact mm-hmm. now with all these things it's it's nothing is ever 100% great but the point being that we're looking for new modes of transportation and there are lots of across the spectrum of transportation from driverless cars, Mm -hmm. flying cars, Mm -hmm. Hyperloop, um, electric trains, 
you name it. Yeah. The micro, the mi yeah, the micro part of it has the potential to develop really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as we said earlier, the, how the regulation applies to it is really important. You know, we heard from Damien that the regulators are now playing catch up in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, it seems there's a up and down regulatory environment in the US, at least according to you, Uber. And we've seen how in the UAE, as we were talking earlier, Abu Dhabi is the regulators is pilot. It's a pilot program. Let's let's take it slowly. Dubai is saying for now it's banned while we review it, at least in for terms rental of companies, in, yeah. for rental companies. I mean, you know, private individuals are, are not affected. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's no one size fits all. But certainly, we've spent the last two years watching their popularity grow, and we'll probably spend the next two or three years seeing how it plays out. And and who knows where it leads us in terms of micro mobility as technology changes as well. Absolutely, and I think it's also it's well there are there are, there are two things that I find interesting. It. It's a, it's a throwback, in a way, to the mid-1980s and the infamous Sinclair C5 when that came out, an, an electric buggy. But you looked silly in one of those. You did look silly, and it was potentially fatal, being that it was below the eye line of 99% of drivers. Um, but the same problem applied. Nobody knew whether it was legal, how you could insure it, where you were supposed to ride it. And then, of course, it disappeared because, as you rightly said, it looked in. And it was really expensive. It. it was really it was expensive. I think it was like yeah. th over a thousand pounds in the mid 80s. Yeah. yeah, it was. And it didn't go very far either. So, but but it, it threw up the same problems that we have, you know, 35 years later. How do you classify these things? And, and how long is it going to be till the regulatory framework comes in place? And where does that leave the user in the meantime? Um, I think it's it's interesting, you know, talking about alternative modes of transport. Of course, we had the story this week as well of the uh, Japanese company NEC making its first um, successful test flight of its flying car, a proper proper flying car, not a car with wings attached to it. Um, based on, although it's based on uh, industrial drone technology, now Japan is pushing forwards uh, very much with that. Uh, the, with the flying approach to the last mile, uh, or further than the last mile in that case, but certainly urban transport from a flying perspective, and it's a, it's potentially a huge market. Um, the I think it was Deloitte said that uh, the the market in the U.S. alone for for powered flying cars could be nearly eighteen billion by twenty forty. So, I'm not saying that e-scooters will be in the same range necessarily, but these new fo forms of, of transport throw up whole new opportunities and new markets, which obviously people are, you know, involved in, in making them or renting them want to be involved in. But the regulatory framework has got to be there. Right, let's leave that there for today, Chris. Thanks so much for being with us. That's a pleasure. Uh, if you have enjoyed this show, listener, please do subscribe um, wherever you listen, whether that be Apple Podcasts or elsewhere. Um, leave a review, a good one. Uh, all that remains is to thank our production team, Ayesha Khan and Arthur Edison. And thank you all for listening. Do join us again next time.